Hello and welcome to the workings of a spiritual mind. You're listening to Holly. Thank you very much for taking the time to give us a little listen today. So for today's episode, we are going in a bit of a different direction. We are looking at a true crime case, one that is famous in history, and one that is allegedly led to the location being one of the most haunted places in America. So for all you American listeners out there, you may well be familiar with this story. If you're not, I hope you find this interesting. We are looking into the Lizzie Borden axe murders and we're going to break it down into a couple of different chapters. So we're going to look at the family, we're going to look at the murders, the investigation that took place, we're going to then look at the trial and then look at the hauntings. So let's begin by chapter one. So this is chapter one, the family. Lizzie Andrew Borden was born in Fall River in Massachusetts on the 19th of July 1860 to Andrew and Sarah Borden. And she was one of three children, Emma, Alice and Lizzie. Emma was the eldest child. Alice unfortunately passed away in 1858, two years before Lizzie was born. Now her father Andrew was English and Welsh descent and although he was born himself into a relatively wealthy family, for their time he struggled quite financially until he came into his own. Now he grew his wealth by manufacturing and selling furniture and caskets And then he turned his hand into property and he became a successful property developer. He was also a director of several textile mills and he owned a considerable amount of commercial property. Now, at the time of his death, his estate was valued at $300,000, which in today's money is around 10 million. So quite a lot for his time. But despite his wealth, he was known for his stinginess. So, for example, the Borden residence lacked indoor plumbing, even though at the time it was starting to become more of a common thing for the wealthy to have. The house itself stood in an affluent area, but the wealthiest residents of Fall River, which included Andrew's cousins, generally lived in a more fashionable neighbourhood called The Hill, which was further from the industrial areas of the city where the Borden family were close to. The family frequently ate spoiled food, as Andrew hated waste, and it was said that he ruled his household with quite a stern demeanour, not showing much love to anyone and having quite a controlling behaviour over his family. Now, Lizzie and her older sister Emma, they had a relatively religious upbringing. They attended church, and as a young woman, Lizzie was very much involved in the church activities, including teaching Sunday school to children of recent immigrants that had come to the United States. She was also involved in religious organisations, serving as a secretary treasurer, and she arranged social movements for women who were part of the church. Now, three years after the death of Lizzie's mother, Andrew remarried a lady called Abby Durfee Gray. And it was said Lizzie later stated that she did call her stepmother Mrs. Borden, but expressed doubts on whether they had an affectionate relationship, as she believed Abby had married her father for his wealth, as there was quite a bit of an age gap between the two. The Borden family was said to have a 25-year-old living maid, who they called Maggie. And Maggie had emigrated to the USA from Ireland. Later on, after the murders took place, she testified that Lizzie and her older sister Emma, they rarely ate meals with their parents because there was a lot of disruptions in the family that led to a lot of silly arguments. For example, in May 1892, Lizzie was quite fond of the local wildlife, including the birds, and most of those birds were pigeons. So she built a roost for the pigeons to live in. However, her father Andrew then killed multiple pigeons in his barn with a hatchet because he thought they were attracting local children to hunt them, which led to an argument with Lizzie recounting that she was upset over those killings. 
Another situation of a family argument was in July 1892, which prompted both Emma and Lizzie to take extended vacations in an area called New Bedford. And after returning to Fall River, about a week before the murders, Lizzie chose to stay in a local room and house, so I guess our local B&B that we would say nowadays, for four days before she returned to the Borden residence. So tension had been grown within the Borden family in the months leading up to those murders. And this escalated when Andrew, through his wealth, started giving gifts of real estate to various people within Abby's family. So after their stepmother's sister received a house, Lizzie and Emma demanded and eventually received a rental property, which was the home they had lived in until their mother died. They ended up purchasing this from their father for one dollar. A few weeks before the murders, the sisters sold the property back to their father for an estimated $5,000, which equates to around $170,000 in today's money. Now, the night before the murders, Lizzie and Emma's maternal uncle, called John Morse, who was their mother's brother, he visited because he was invited to stay for a few days to discuss business matters with Andrew. This then led to speculation that their conversation, particularly about property transfers, may have again aggravated an already tense family environment. So several days before the murders, the entire household had been violently ill and a family friend was later to have said that mutton left on the stove to use in meals over several days because of Andrew's stinginess was the cause of this. However, Abby, the stepmother, had feared that they had actually been poisoned due to the increasing fact that Andrew was quite an unpopular man in Fall River. Now this is leading us on into chapter two called The Murders. So John Morse arrived the evening of August the 3rd and the murders took place on the morning of Thursday the 4th of August. Now that morning after breakfast, which was Andrew, Abby, John and Maggie, the maid, they were present. Andrew and John went to the sitting room where they chatted for nearly an hour and then John later left at around 8.50am to visit his niece in Fall River and he planned to return to the Borden home for lunch at around noon. Andrew then left for his morning walk shortly after 9am. Now the cleaning of the guest room where John was sleeping was one of Lizzie and Emma's regular chores but it was Abby who decided to clean it herself so she went upstairs sometime between 9am and 10.30am to make the bed and this is when it is believed that she was attacked and killed. Now according to a forensic investigation Abby was facing her killer at the time of the attack and it was said that she was first struck either in her forehead or or on the side of the head with a hatchet-like weapon. And that caused her to obviously fall down onto the floor, which created a lot more uh, bruising and cuts to her face. From then, the killer was said to either stand over her, delivering the blows, or actually sit on her back, pinning her to the ground, blowing down with the hatchet multiple times. And it was rumoured to be about 17 to 19 times that were direct hits to the head, which eventually killed her. When Andrew then returned home at around 10.30am, his key failed to open the front door, so he ended up having to knock. Maggie, the maid, went to unlock the door, and finding it jammed, she started to utter some words under her breath, you know, like you do when you're annoyed or something. She would then later testify that when she was saying whatever it was she said, she heard Lizzie laughing immediately after this, but didn't actually see Lizzie directly. She stated that the laughter sounded as though it was coming from the top of the stairs, and this statement in the trial was considered significant as Abby was then already dead by this time and her body would have been visible to anyone on the home's second floor. She'd gone in to clean the room, the door was open. 
Lizzie later denied being upstairs and actually testified that her father had asked her where Abby was, to which she replied that a messenger had come to deliver Abby a summons to go and visit a sick friend. Now Maggie, after letting Andrew in, stated that she helped to remove his boots and change into his slippers before he lay down on the sofa for a nap. But this detail is contradicted by the crime scene photos, which show Andrew was actually still wearing his boots at the time of the murder. Maggie also testified that she was in her third floor bedroom resting from clean windows when just before 11.10am she heard Lizzie call from downstairs shouting, Maggie come quick, father's dead, somebody came in and killed him. Andrew was slumped on a couch in the downstairs sitting room having been attacked from behind and the killer again struck around 11 blows with a hatchet-like weapon and the handle actually broke off with the blade being caught in Andrew's skull. And what was thought to be the murder weapon was later found downstairs in the basement. And upon further investigation, it was said to fit perfectly into the cuts made in Andrew's skull. Now, after the murders took place, Dr. Bowen, who was the family's physician who lived across the street, arrived shortly after. He pronounced both of the victims dead, with detectives estimating that Andrew's death had occurred at approximately 11 a.m. So this leads us into Chapter 3, The Investigation. So Lizzie was arrested and tried for both murders in June 1893 and she was arrested because her initial answers to police questions were said to be strange and sometimes contradictory. For example she says she reported hearing like a groan noise, a scraping noise, a distress call before entering the house but then two hours later she told police she heard nothing and entered the house not realising that anything was actually wrong. When she was asked where her stepmother was, she recounted Abby receiving a note asking her to visit a sick friend. She also stated that she thought Abby had returned and asked if someone in the household could go upstairs and look for her. It was then thought that Maggie had gone up the stairs. If she'd gone up the stairs, the way the room was laid out, the location of the bedroom, as you would go up into the stairs with the door being open, you'll be able to see who was lying on the floor. So if they'd gone up the stairs and looked, they would have been able to see Abby laying face down on the floor. So most of the officers who interviewed Lizzie reported that they really quite disliked her attitude. Some of them said that she was way too calm for what had happened. Despite her behaviour and her apparently changing alibis, she was not actually checked for any bloodstains or physical evidence on her body. The police said that they did search her room but it was a very short inspection and at the trial they actually admitted to not doing a proper search because Lizzie was apparently not feeling very well. They were subsequently criticised for their lack of diligence. So when the police were looking into the murders and they were going around the house looking for evidence, in the basement they found two hatchets, two axes and a hatchet head with a broken handle and this is the hatchet head that was suspected of being the murder weapon as the break in the handle appeared quite fresh. However there was ash and dust on the head, unlike what was on the other bladed tools, that appeared to have been deliberately applied to make it look as though it had been in the basement for quite some time. Now, referring back to the illness of the family that took place before the murders, the family's milk and the victim's stomach were tested for poison. None was actually found. Now, upon hearing of the investigation taking place with Lizzie and her being a potential suspect, the local neighbours grew suspicious of her and it was said that she visited a local druggist to purchase some kind of hydroclonic acid in a diluted form. When she was questioned about that, she said that she inquired about the acid to clean furs 
but it was then stated that that type of liquid wouldn't have any antiseptic properties to be able to clean any fur. So why she purchased that, or if she did purchase it, hasn't come to light. And now on August 6th, police conducted a more thorough search of the house, inspecting both Emma and Lizzie's clothing, and they confiscated the broken-handled hatchet head. That evening, a police officer and the mayor visited the house, and Lizzie was then informed that she was a suspect in the murders. Now, the next morning, she was spotted in the kitchen tearing up a dress. And she said she'd done that because she was planning to put it on the fire because it was covered in paint. But it was never determined whether that dress was the dress she was wearing on the day of the murders. And now we lead into chapter four, the trial. Now, Lizzie appeared at an inquest hearing on August the 8th. And her request to have a family attorney present was refused because it was said that the inquest must be held in private. She allegedly was prescribed regular doses of morphine to calm her nerves and it is possible that her testimony was unaffected by this. Her behaviour was often erratic and she sometimes refused to answer questions even if the answer would be beneficial to her. She often contradicted herself and started to provide alternating accounts of the morning in question, such as saying she was in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father arrived home. Then she said she was in the dining room doing some ironing. Then she said she was coming down the stairs at the time it happened. On August 11th, Lizzie was then served with a warrant of arrest and jailed. So Lizzie's trial took place in New Bedford that started on June the 5th, 1893. But five days before this trial commenced, another axe murder occurred in the same area of Fall River. This time the victim was a lady called Bertha Manchester and she was found hacked to death in her kitchens. And the similarities between the Manchester and Borden murders were striking and noted by the jurors. However, a man called Jose Correa de Mello, who was a Portuguese immigrant, was later convicted of Manchester's murder in 1894. And it was determined that he wasn't in the vicinity of Fall River at the time of the Borden murders. Now, during the trial, a prominent point of discussion, and including the press coverage of it, was of the hatchet head found in the basement. And it was not convincingly demonstrated by the prosecution to actually be the murder weapon. So the prosecutors argued that the killer had removed the handle because it would have been covered in blood. And one officer testified that a hatchet handle was found near the hatchet head. But another officer then contradicted this information. And again, no clothing was found. No bloody clothing or bloodstains were found at the scene where the murder weapon was found. Now, Lizzie's presence at home and everything she was saying with the different alibis was also another point of dispute during the trial, as it would be. According to a testimony, Maggie, the maid, she entered the second floor of the home at around 10.50 a.m. And she left Lizzie and her father downstairs. But then Lizzie told people that at this time she was actually not even in the house. She was in the barn across from their property for about 20 minutes or possibly even half an hour. And this was allegedly testified by a local man called Hyman Lubinsky, who said he saw a woman of Lizzie's attire leaving the barn at around 11.03am. And Andrew's murder was said to have taken place a few minutes before that. And then at 11.10, Lizzie was said to have called Maggie downstairs, told her that Andrew had been murdered and ordered her not to enter the room, instead asking her to go get a doctor. So during the trial, both of the victims' heads had been removed during autopsy and the skulls were admitted as evidence during said trial and presented on June the 5th 1893 but upon seeing them in the courtroom Lizzie then fainted and the trial had to stop. Evidence was also excluded about why she sought to purchase the acid for the cleaning 
and a judge ruled that the incident was too remote in time to have any connection to the murders. Now, after an hour and a half of deliberation, the jury actually acquitted Lizzie of the murders, and upon exiting the courthouse, she told reporters that she was the happiest woman in the world. So who the heck could the killer be? Well, there are a couple of different people that have been thought of. Lizzie obviously remained the prime suspect in her father and stepmother's murders. And one suggestion was she'd done it because she was physically and sexually abused by her father, which drove her to kill him. But there's actually little evidence to support this. And incest is not a topic that would have been discussed at the time. The methods for also collecting physical evidence to prove that this could have happened was quite different back in 1892. So if you think of what we have today with collecting physical evidence of people's bodies and DNAs and doing all the different kind of rape test kits and things like that, they wouldn't have had those in the 1800s. Another suggestion was that Lizzie committed the murders after being caught in a secret tryst with Maggie. And in her later years, Lizzie was rumoured to be gay, but there was no such speculation about Maggie, who later married a man she met while working as a maid in Montana. Maggie died in 1948, and it was alleged that she gave a deathbed confession to her sister, in which she stated that she had changed her testimony on the stand in order to protect Lizzie. Whether she did or not, There's no actual evidence that she wrote a deathbed confession. So we could say that that was just pure speculation, as is everything else. So another significant suspect was John Morse, the uncle of Lizzie and Emma, because apparently he rarely met with the family. But after his sister had died, later on, visiting Andrew, sleeping in the house the night before the murders. But according to law enforcement who did investigate him, he provided a perfect detailed alibi for the death of Abby. He was considered a suspect by police for a period of time and then the main focus then went to Lizzie still. Another possible suspect is a chap called William Borden who was suspected to be Andrew's illegitimate son but he was suspected by an author who surmised that William had tried and failed to extort money from his alleged father. However, after extensive research looking into it, William was proved that he was not Andrew's son. And then another suspect, potentially, was Emma Borden, the older sister. But she had an alibi at a place called Fairhaven, which is about 15 miles from Fall River. A crime writer in 1984 called Frank Spearing He wrote a book called Lizzie and said that Emma might well have secretly visited her family home to kill her father and stepmother before returning to Fairhaven in time to receive the telegram informing her of the murders. Now, after the trial, Emma and Lizzie moved into a large modern house in the Hill neighbourhood in Fall River, so the more affluent area. And around this time, Lizzie began using the name Lizbeth Borden. And at their new house, they had staff that included living maids, they had a housekeeper, they had a coachman. Now, because Abby was ruled to have died before Andrew, her estate went first to Andrew, and then at his death, passed to his daughters as part of his estate. A considerable settlement, however, was paid to settle claims made by Abby's family. Now, despite being acquitted in the trial, Lizzie was very much still a suspect in the eyes of the local neighbours and by the Fall River Society. And her name was often brought into the public eye and she was accused of several different things of events that occurred in areas such as shoplifting. It started to cause tension between Emma and Lizzie, led to a few arguments. And in 1905, shortly after another argument, allegedly over a party, Emma moved out of the house and she never saw her sister again. Now, Lizzie died of pneumonia 
on June the 1st, 1927 in Fall River at the age of 66. Her funeral details were not published and so very few attended her funeral. Nine days later, Emma died from chronic inflammation of the kidneys in a home in New Hampshire, having moved to this location in 1923 for both health reasons and because of the arguments with her sister and to avoid any of the attention following the publication of another book about the murders. The Borden sisters never married and they were buried side by side in the family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. Then the murders remain one of America's greatest unsolved mysteries. So what do you think of that? When you hear about what happened and the facts and the trial and how much the police didn't look into things, it really is a question mark. Lizzie Borden could well have been someone who murdered her father and stepmother. It could have been that chap Jose. Who's to say he wasn't in that area, even though it was found that he wasn't? Because they don't have the tools to look at investigations back then like they do now, it's very hit and miss. And I don't think we are ever going to know. We will never, ever find out. I mean, for this to occur in the 1800s, and we're talking about it now in 2024, it's like the old Jack the Ripper case in London. We will just never know. And it really makes you question things. It's It almost gets to the point where you really want to know, you really want to find out. But no matter how much research you do, you will just never know. The dead know. Speaking of the dead, let's move into Chapter 5, The Hauntings. Now, the home of Lizzie Borden is considered an historic gem, but also one of the most haunted houses in America. Now, today the property is open and it's operating as a B&B, and it's also open daily from 10 till midnight as there is a museum within the property. And that museum runs a variety of different tours and experiences, including a house tour, a ghost tour and ghost hunts. Now, in 1918, the house was sold to a private family who used it as their home. And then in 1948, it was sold to another family with the surname of McGinn. The McGinns decided to take advantage of people's curiosities. And so they restored the manor to look exactly like it did when the Borden family lived there. From the furnishings in the room, to the layer of the room, to the colour scheme. And so in 1996, they then opened that up as a B&B. Now, the McGinns and the current owners of the property have reported several paranormal and strange occurrences throughout the years, which doesn't surprise me. Some of these are lights turning on and off, wall switches flickering on their own. So I'm assuming those wall switches are to said lights, doors opening and closing, footsteps have been heard, staff and guests have felt a presence brush up against them, disembodied voices have been heard. People have been touched. Crying has been heard in the room that Abby was killed. An apparition, one that is said to resemble Lizzie, has been seen in the basement looking around. Two children have been seen in the home and heard playing marbles. Cold spots are reported in Maggie, the maid's room. Another apparition of a woman dressed in a maid's clothes has been seen doing her chores around the home. Disembodied cat's meows have been heard and felt brushing up against people. An indentation of a body laying on top of a bed has been reported. Another apparition of an older lady with grey hair has been seen happily pottering around the home. Shadow people have been seen on the staircase, down the main hall, going into different rooms. Photos of misty human forms have been captured in the living room where Andrew died. And an EVP recording allegedly caught the voice of Maggie saying, Ma'am, come quick. Now, EVPs... If you haven't heard of that before, is electronic voice phenomena. 
And it's, it's fascinating when you hear something that you've recorded and caught that you didn't hear with your physical ears. So basically, when I go on a ghost hunt, you do vigils in different rooms at night time. So there might be five of you, let's say, and you start the vigil, usually in pitch black, but you start recording on like a camera or a voice recorder and you start calling out to see if there's anyone there, anyone wants to communicate. You may well pick up those answers on that recorder that you've got rather than hearing it with your physical ears and that's what EVP is. There have been countless occasions of fantastic EVPs caught, absolutely incredible. I caught my first one, I'm going to tell you about this now because now it's made me excited. My first EVP I caught was in a location called Mitchell and Priory in the UK and we were in a, a building called the Gatehouse. They still do ghost hunts at Michelin Priory but they don't go in the Gatehouse anymore I think because it's so run down. And, but we were sitting in there, a few torches on, we tried to do a vigil, we didn't really get anything and then we were distracted by a massive spider on the wall. I mean it was massive, you've never seen a spider that big. So my record is still going but our focus is on this spider and it wasn't until I got home the next day and played that back that I heard a man's voice going to try and do the voice okay so don't laugh it literally said you must leave now yeah kid you not still got that evp to this day fascinating fascinating absolutely love it so which begs the question why would the location be haunted well there are several reasons you see one of those reasons could be that it is thought if a wicked horrific horrendous crime took place it would leave energy imprints in the location that it happened. Everything holds energy. Innate objects, buildings, people, animals, the ground, everything holds energy, whether that's positive or negative energy. And sometimes that energy leads into what's called a residual haunting. Now, we will look at different types of hauntings. We'll look at more EVP stuff in other podcast episodes. I'll try and see if I can upload some of my EVPs I've caught because that might be quite interesting for you to listen to. But anywho, residual haunting is basically like a record player being stuck in a loop. It's going around and around again, playing the same old thing. And sometimes that's what energy does. When the crime has taken place, it leaves imprints in the energy of the location, like the walls of the building. And it will just continuously play it. That doesn't mean that there's a spirit actually there, although it comes across very much as though there is. If you are a frequent ghost hunter, you've done it for years and years, you can then really start to determine what's residual and what's an intellectual haunting. So that's one reason. Another reason could be that, again, it's said that some spirits who are angry about the way they've passed, they don't accept that they've passed. They're not ready. They don't want to cross over yet. They have almost unfinished business. So they stay in the location that the crime take place. And usually when this happens, they still see their surroundings just as they did when they passed. They don't see things in the modern time, in the modern era that we are now. And to give an example of this, another ghost hunt that I went on, a location called New Haven Fort. And we, my friend and I ended up communicating with a, a young chap who passed in 1930. 43 maybe if, if my memory is correct and he communicated with us I actually saw his presence it freaked me right out when I first saw him that's a story for another day but we ended up communicating and his question to us was like why are women in the fort what is it you're wearing what is that on your feet because he in his surroundings was still in the 1940s and then he's seeing us in our weird old clothing to him so there's another reason why they could potentially stick around 
It's also said that some spirits who have accepted they've passed, they've transitioned, they've gone from physical to spiritual, they do like to come back and visit a place that was familiar to them and actually gave them happy memories. So even if that horrific crime took place to that person in that location, prior to that, you may well still have happy, beautiful memories. And that spirit may just want to visit that place as part of having those fond memories. They've forgotten about what's happened to them. They don't always notice the living. Again, they're just going about their business. So if that's the case, who are these people who are allegedly haunting this location? Another thing that I would say about this is that a lot of people, when they go into a building or say you've moved into a new home and weird stuff is happening and you think your home is haunted, a lot of things I've heard is like, well, how the heck can my home be haunted? It was only built like a couple of years ago. It's a new build. It's very much the ground that holds the memories, the energy, and what can lead to haunting. It doesn't matter about the building. It doesn't matter how old or young a building is. It's the ground and the area that it sits on. And that could very much be connected to the children that are heard playing and with marbles. Because nowhere in my investigative work about Lizzie and her family did it ever mention about two young children being in the home. So who are those two young children? The apparitions that are also seen. Why are they seen there? Is it connected to the house? Is it connected to a nearby property? Is it connected to the land that was originally on the house and just happens to be in that house? That is very much connected to residual hauntings. Again, we'll go through that in more detail on another podcast episode. So for example, Andrew and Abby, okay, they were horrifically killed. Why would they be in there? Why would they want to stick around? Do they generally have unfinished business? Are they there because actually prior to the murders, they were a happy, loving couple? Or are they there to try and get a message across to tell us who killed them? Because apparently their voices are frequently heard trying to communicate over EVP. And the same could be said about Maggie. Is she there being seen? They've said there's an apparition in a maid's clothes. Is she there because she enjoyed working there? Again, prior to the murders, it was happy memories. She's going about her daily chores, her daily business. Is she there because she has regrets? If we go back to her alleged deathbed confession that we just don't know if it actually took place, does she know more than she ever let on? Why is Lizzie there? If she had a hard upbringing because she didn't have a very loving father, if she was allegedly physically and sexually abused, why would she be there? Did she go there because she actually was the killer? If she's been seen in the basement, is she looking for the murder weapon, trying to hide it? Or is she there because, again, before the murders, she actually had fond memories of the place? All these what-ifs, all these questions, it really starts to open up further questions that we probably will never, ever get the answer to. Like I was saying before, if you lost your life in a horrific way, why on earth would you come back and stay around that place? Could it be that we've lost our memories of that death? Is it the energy of that negative situation that draws you back in? Is it because that was the last place you were physically on earth that creates that connection? Or is it those good times and memories that you had there that act as like a greater conductor of positive energy that draws you back to the location? You completely forget what happened to you or you've remembered, you've accepted it, what happens happened. I'm still going to go back to a place where I love. And when we transition from physical to spiritual, and if you've listened to past episodes, I've spoken about when we live in the physical realm, we're on a low, dense vibration. When we pass the spirit, we go to a higher, lighter vibration. In the spiritual realm, it's a place that our ego doesn't exist anymore. Our pains and ailments that we had that might have 
blighted us in our lives don't cross over with us. Our ego and all those bits and bobs are connected to our physical form. They're not connected to our higher self, our soul, so they don't cross over. In the spiritual realm, there's forgiveness, there's understanding, there's unconditional love that surrounds all spiritual beings. So if that's the case, why would a spirit then again have unfinished business and go back to the place where they were murdered? If in the spiritual realm we have forgiveness and that unconditional love and our higher self, surely by going back to the place where we were killed because we want to get across who killed us, that's an act of the ego. Do you see what I mean? It just opens up questions after questions. It's like when you chuck a stone into the water and you see a ripple effect go out. It's just one thing after another. And we could be here forever talking about like what ifs. What about that? What about this? We're never ever going to know. And like I said, it's one of America's greatest unanswered historical stories. We will never ever know who killed Andrew and Abby. We will never ever know if Lizzie generally did do it or she didn't. We will never know the reasons behind why those people, if it is those people, are at that house. Is it an intellectual haunting? Is it residual? If you are a well-travelled ghost hunter and you're listening to this, you may well have done an investigation at Lizzie Borden's house and you'll be able to really tell us if it was residual or intellectual. Questions after questions, unanswered. We will just never know. But it does make you think, doesn't it? And it's quite interesting. True crime cases are quite interesting, even though it's a little bit morbid. It is fascinating to hear what's gone on, especially when something has happened, like the Jack the Ripper. Ooh, maybe we'll look into that one as well. That might be a good one. I've looked at Jack the Ripper documentaries before, and they are amazing. Yep, that's definitely going to be a future episode. If you like your true crime and you like your spiritual hauntings, then by all means, look out for that episode. So I hope you found that interesting. I found that very interesting when I investigated it. And it's pause for thought. And like I say, we will just never know the answers. And that's the whole point of the workings of a spiritual mind. I'm not here to tell you the answers. I don't have all those answers. We're just going to have to think of these things and come to our own conclusions, right? So that's it. That's it for today's episode. Until the next time, as I say, I hope you found it interested. If you've got this far, thank you so much for continuing to listen. Wherever you may be in the world, have a wonderful day, evening. Take care of each other, stay safe, and I will see you on the next episode.